Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Fresh from the Hill, Inside Stories of Noteworthy Cornellians. Today, I'm here with Camila Salazar, class of 2016, who is going to be our next host for the program. So welcome, Camila. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. Well, I'm so excited to have you on as our next host, particularly because of your vast experience in the podcasting world, which we will get to in a second. But first, I want to start <laughs> um, at the beginning of your Cornell journey. So tell us a little bit about your journey to Cornell. Where did you grow up and how did you find Cornell and how did you end up choosing to go there? Yeah, so um a little bit about my background. I'm born and raised in Miami, Florida. I am Colombian American. Both my parents are immigrants from the lovely Colombia. Um, so I am Hispanic. I heavily identified that way. It's truly my whole culture and upbringing. Um, and I found Cornell because I, in high school, when I did like a PSAT or something, I think they ask you to check the boxes of what you want your major to be. And I think for like maybe ninth and 10th grade, I was like, I think I'll go to law school because I do love, you know, like analytical reasoning and like picking apart argue, like that sort of like the puzzle piece of like an, of like an argument and was always very fun to me. Like I, you know, I, we didn't have a formal debate club, but I was always mad that we didn't, you know, that sort of thing. And so I was like, maybe this, and so for like a hot second, when I was like 14, I, you know, checked the box of lawyer and then I would get all the, I started getting all this mail for Cornell ILR school. Um, that combined with a friend of mine uh, who was a year older, who he went, he ended up going to Cornell, you know, the name was just in my head, right? It was like, you know, marketing is very strong. So I was constantly getting this at like, Cornell ILR stuff. So I eventually applied to the Cornell ILR school. I think at the time, correct me if I'm wrong, at that time, which was, you know, 2011, 2012, uh, you could apply to two different schools at the same time. And you had one that was like a primary one, one that was a secondary, and they did their admissions like separately, like they separately decided to admit or deny you. And then if the, if your number one choice denied you, but your number two choice accepted you, you could go into the, you could get that, like you could, you would just be accepted normally. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember which one was my first choice and which one was my second choice truly. But I just remember thinking like, this is to, to double the opportunity to get into Cornell. Yeah. So that was a huge draw for me. I don't, do they still do that? I don't really know. To be honest, you know, in the alumni affairs side of things, I don't know the you're, answer to that you're, question. You're literally on the opposite <laughs> side. I mean, that's, it should be something that I know, person. but. <laughs> no, that's totally, that's totally uh, reasonable that you wouldn't know that, but that was appealing to me at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and then the way I found out that I got into Cornell, I think was like kind of um, funny or different or interesting. And so I had heard of when you're in, when you're going through the college application process. Yeah. That shit sticks with you. <laughs> like, I feel like I'm still have like ghost pains of the stress of it. And I remember, you know, learning about likely letters, like just, you know, you just learn about every aspect of it, whether or not it applies to you. Right. So like, I think you learned about um, likely letters in terms of how it how they correspond to like student athletes and stuff like that. And so you just know about all these things. Um, and then you also know that was a time when 
a lot of universities had digital, like digital um, acceptances, but a lot of them also still sent the letters. So mm-hmm. some, like I remember some schools I found out through letter and some through through online. And I remember getting a lot, like I'd already started to get some acceptances that were maybe the school was like rolling admission or maybe they were like, you know, this is a promising candidate. We're trying to, you know, we're letting them know early so that they're more attached to us and like whatever more prestigious school comes along later. I don't know, but I had a couple of acceptances. Um, They weren't likely letters. I think they were just early because they were trying to snatch up um, their, like the more prominent talent, right? Like maybe Mm -hmm. if this is your safety school or something, they Mm -hmm. react more aggressively to accepting you. Um, And so I had gotten a couple of rejection letters also. And like everyone knows that the small envelope that is not marked with any marketing on the outside other than the school emblem, is a rejection letter. And mm-hmm. so I come home from school one day and I, it must've been after lacrosse practice also. And I was just wiped. And I, I just remember being in a bad mood, had a bad day. I come home. I'm, I was a latchkey kid also. So I come home, I'm like alone, I'm hungry. I'm just like, Oh, like when are my parents going to get home so we can eat and I just get the mail as I usually do. And I see this small envelope letter from Cornell university. doesn't say anything else on it. And I'm like, fucking perfect. Like one of my main schools that I was interested in, you know, this is a perfect cherry on top of the day. I'm about to get, you know, rejected. And I remember I just didn't open it. Cause I was like, I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna look at this just yet. And I remember I never do this. And I just remember being like, uh, let me like ease it in. So I lifted the letter up to the light to like, see if I could get a sneak preview of my rejection. It, <laughs> I just never did that ever. I didn't, it, I don't know. And I, like I'm trying to read through and then I see one word. And I'm like, does that word say congratulations? I, or something like that. I was like, that looks like a positive word. And I was very confused and I opened it and it was a one page acceptance letter. Wow. Like it wasn't even a, it wasn't even a likely letter in the sense that like, you know, what you, what I remember learning about likely letters was that they were like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Like if you keep it up, if you keep your grades up, like you'll get in. It wasn't like that. It was just congratulations. Like your acceptance package will come in a month, you know, when everyone, when we were supposed to find out about Mm -hmm. acceptances. And it it was just truly bizarre. I still don't know why I got such an early, like truly extremely early acceptance, but I was like through the roof. Part of me was like, is this a prank? Like it was just a one page acceptance that didn't say, it didn't, I mean, maybe if I dig it up, I'm sure it's somewhere in my files, but it didn't say anything about why I was being let uh, why I was being accepted early. And it was to the ILR school. And I remember hearing a bunch of people saying that they found out they got in because they were, you know, fellow, uh, students of color or prospective students of color who were invited to, um, to like, uh, not Cornell days, but what's the one that's like the commitment or the, uh, tradition. It, it, it would, yeah. Cornell tradition. Yes. Mm-hmm. So who were invited to like and that's when you are, you know, invited to go visit Cornell for free. They pay for your flights, everything. And so I know a lot of students of color um, received those um, notifications and those came out before the official admit, like um, acceptances. And those those are basically like, we're doing this because you're in. So a lot of people found out that way. I got mm-hmm. that after I got my letter. Mm-hmm. So I was... I don't know how, and I didn't, and I asked around and no one, no one I met at Cornell got another letter like mine. So who knows how or why, but it was a great way to turn around a bad day. Yeah, it sounds like it. So, 
So you obviously decided to go to Cornell after getting accepted. Um, Mm -hmm. Any like special experiences that you want to talk about or like little anecdotes or campus activities that you took part in um, that kind of shaped your time at Cornell? Yeah, so I, looking back, I definitely wish I was more involved in certain things than others, simply because I think, you know, imposter syndrome is very real, um, especially in all students, but especially in young women. And I remember I was technically a part of, you know, CornellRadio.com, and especially near the end of my four years, I was more and more involved, but I tried to be involved like the second I got on campus and I would just psych myself out. So, mm. um, and, and just like not show up. So I, so that was something that kind of plagued me that eventually thanks to like other friends who, you know, wanted to form a show together. I was able to be a part of a show um, called Big Red Banter, which I think has been co-opted. Like, I think there's a show now at Cornell called Big Red Banter that is absolutely nothing to do with the show we had. I think it's about sports or something, which is great. I mean, it's a great name, so I don't blame them. Um, and they might not have even known about us truly it could be a coincidence. So that's fine. But so that was really fun. I did that like my junior, I did that in my last three semesters and it was, I loved it. So there was that. Um, I was also in a sorority. I was in Alpha Phi and I had a very um, mixed experience with that. I'm glad I did it. I would do it again. But I think when you are a young woman who it comes from a very different background and upbringing than a lot of um, the type of women that tend to, or type of young people in general who tend to join Greek life, um, I think it can be a bit of a culture shock. And mm-hmm. yeah, um, I'm still friends with many people from it, but I definitely, and I really enjoyed the, like there's a lot of pros to being in a, in Greek life and I definitely enjoyed those, but I think um, I probably would have enjoyed to have some other activity that counterbalanced that. Maybe that would have been Cornell Radio if I had picked it up earlier. Um, and then another, my other main activity, I was in a business fraternity called Pi Sigma Epsilon. Obviously, I am not in business now, but I, at the time, I was very lost, didn't know what I wanted to do. So I think that was a good catch-all. I was also, I started as an ILR major, and then I transferred to school communication, and I received a business, uh, I received the business minor as well. So it felt like a good fit to exploring more possibilities. You know, there's older students who have been through a bunch of different internships that you can learn from and talk to. And then also there was a pretty good alumni network. And the people from that business fraternity became some of my like closest friends, especially Mm -hmm. in my last two years. And so um, I really loved that I had them. So even though I didn't really end up going to business, like I still loved the people that came from it and the the connections I made through that. And so I think that also helped um, counterbalance the the Greek life, even though it's technically a fraternity, it's not, it's very, it's everyone who goes to Cornell will know that it's, it's a separate entity. I mean, Mm -hmm. there might be some overlap, but there's so many people from all over, from all different groups of campus um, who, who joined those, those um, professional fraternities and organizations. Um, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Well, I am so happy that you mentioned earlier, you mentioned imposter syndrome. And just then you kind of, you know, touched on that you weren't exactly sure, like what you were going to do. And maybe you were a little lost. And I think that that's 
um, you know, so a, a, I, but how many college students aren't, you know, like, right. I just think that it's an important piece of, um, information to be put out there so that, you know, if any of our listeners are currently in, in college and especially now during this such uncertain time to know that it's okay to not know yeah. what you're going to do with your life. Yeah. And I think Cornell is, I mean, I freaking loved Cornell. Everyone who knows me knows that even my, especially my non-Cornell friends. Um, But Cornell definitely has a a culture of extreme competitiveness and it feels like everyone has their shit together. And there are some people who, who do, like, I know so many students from my time there who were like, you know, from day one, freshman year, were like, I'm going to medical school. I'm doing this type of surgery, I'm doing this assist. And like, you know, X years later, match day just passed recently. And I'm seeing that they did, but they finished medical school. They match with the program that the one they've been talking about since day one. And that's great, but that can be really intimidating if you don't have that direction early on. Like so, and there were a lot of people also who said those same things. And, you know, by the end of the four years, they're in a completely different, you know, a completely different path. And I think, um, if everyone around you is saying they're definitely doing this thing, whether they end up doing it or not, that is really, really intimidating. And I know I didn't realize how much the fake it till you make it thing was in effect. And so I was very honest from the beginning of like, I don't know, I kind of like this thing. And I felt like, Oh, I shouldn't have done that. People, you know, like that's not a thing that people hear. That's not a thing that people necessarily respect. Like, you know, and I, I think that's changing now. And I want to tell anyone listening, like, it is okay if you don't know. I know that, that sounds cliche. But it's okay if you don't know. It truly is. You know, life finds a way. Um, don't listen to people who maybe judge you for not having it all figured out, like, day one. Uh, because that's not how most people operate. Most people don't know what they're going to do for the rest of their life when they are 17 or 18 exactly. years Exactly. <laughs> that, I mean, I'm 35, and I still you know, question and, and wonder (laughs) what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. So I think that it's at at any time. Um, so, you know, you started in the ILR school and then you kind of transitioned to communication. you got that minor in business. So what led you to the podcasting world? And yeah, I just want to know a little bit more about how you became a professional podcaster. Right. So when I was in high school, my dream job was like, a talk radio show host. Um, back then there was the only jobs in, well, one podcasting was very, it existed, but it was not, it, not, not mainstream at all. And like paid opportunities were non-existent. The only paid podcasting really then were shows that were both radio shows and podcasts. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you see that a lot with like the NPR um, list of shows, right? Like a car talk or this American life. Yep. Um, things like that. So I, one, loved NPR. The, like, my mom played it a lot, but especially in, like, the weekends and stuff, we would listen to um, This American Life together. You know, I also really loved Snap Judgment and Ask Me Another, which were shows. So I think they were newer when I was in high school or early college, but I, you know, I still heard them in the car with my mom um, during those time periods of my life. Mm-hmm. And so that was interesting and and it's just like this narrative storytelling that I mean, anyone who's listened to a This American Life story or, you know, serial, which is made by the same producers, 
those stories grab you and they like hold on to you and you are addicted to them mm-hmm. and you're in your car or you're like laying in bed because you want to hear the next episode and you don't have anywhere to drive to. Mm-hmm. So, so that was appealing to me. And then that combined with like the only really visible other thing on the radio was like talk radio, you know, where people are personalities and they, you know, they shoot the shit and it's like really fun. They keep you entertained in the morning. So for me, that the so for me, both of those things were interesting, even though they're very separate, very separate careers and skills. To me, it was like kind of blanketed under the umbrella of of radio. Like I, again, like it, it was very nebulous back then. It was hard to separate these things. So that's why I was interested in you know CornellRadio.com and like WVBR. Um, and I tried to you know make myself do those things, and it was hard in the beginning. Um, actually, once when I was a sophomore, I think I did a shift at WVBR, and and it was fun, but it wasn't like sustainable in the in the way that the Cornell Radio could be at that time. WVBR was like off campus, and then by the time I was like a junior or senior in college, then it was in College Town. Mm-hmm. So I think that was another factor in it. Um, when you are scared of doing something, you find any excuse not to do it and having to take a cab when you're in this small town that you're not, that you don't know alone. Like that was a very easy way to be like, no, I'm not going to do that. Anyway. So I had that in mind. And so I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I was like, okay, communication I think is, and we don't have like broadcasts or anything in Cornell. So I was like, okay, communication, like there are some courses in that major that I think align with some things I want to learn, you know, like marketing, like anything that was creative adjacent, but still maybe businessy or still could be lucrative. I kind of pursued those sorts of classes. And then in 2014, I want to say was when season one of Serial um, launched. Mm -hmm. And so for people who don't know, Serial is a a show um, created by the creators of This American Life. And it is one story told across the season. That's why it's called, you know, it's serialized, you know, but I'm ch- and um, the first season of that show went incredibly mega viral, like yep. crazy, like everyone was talking about it. Everyone listened to it. It was even, even in college, which I know college kids are kind of like in their own bubble. And a lot of things that happen in the outside world just don't penetrate the bubble because you're so focused on both studying and then also having a good time because you're in college. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was one of the few things that really permeated the bubble and everyone was talking about it. And I remember I like binge listened to it during a February break where I didn't end up leaving campus because it was so freezing and I live in Florida. So like I couldn't leave for, I wasn't going to fly to Florida for three days. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking like, this is it. Like, this is the way in. Like immediately after, like I just saw I saw the potential of the industry that could be based on this. And like, even immediately then all these other podcasts were um, cropping up by other, by, you know, by NPR, by other public radio stations, things like that. And I was like, this is, this is the way, and this is what, this is what I want to do before I was worried because there wasn't a lot of opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was very competitive because I think I, maybe I forgot to mention that, but to be a producer on This American Life or any one entry-level positions there don't really exist. Mm-hmm. They have like one fellowship that is not, it's a fellowship. It's nowhere near an internship. It's like, if you've done three internships, then maybe you're qualified. So it's very hard to get into these prestigious places. Um, and so I was like, this is the beginning of like a lot of opportunity opening up. So I just kind of decided to double down on that. Um, that, and that was my junior year at Cornell. And so then that summer I interned at like some online radio, um, station in Miami and it was very 
small. They didn't really know what they were doing either, but they taught me how to use the equipment and I practiced using that equipment. And I took advantage of that time um, to learn a lot about equipment and like morning radio talk shows and things like that. And then the following, and then that following year, I was a senior. Everyone around me had jobs lined up really early on. I graduated and had no job, mm-hmm. but a week before graduation, um, I got a call back or I got an email about an application for an internship at NPR that I had submitted and they wanted to interview me. And so then I found out um, about three weeks after graduation that I got the internship and it was for NPR in New York City for uh, as a programming intern for NPR's Ask Me Another, previously mentioned one mm-hmm. of my favorite um, shows from, from them. And I was extremely excited and I packed my bags and went to New York. And so this internship was a semester long, you know, four months. And I had to decide like, am I gonna stay or am I gonna go back to Miami? And I realized like podcasting is booming, it is exploding. I'm learning more about what it takes to break in I want to give it a chance. Like if I go back to Miami, like I might, it, it's going to be tenfold, like 10 times harder. Um, so I decided to stay. I got a job as I had a million jobs, like in my first two years in New York. And so I got a job as a waitress, a hostess slash a hostess. And then I was quickly promoted to waitress, which, you know, I guess that says something about, you know, Cornell work ethic. But um, <laughs> anyway, I, was a waitress. I, what else did I do? I think that was like four months. And then that's next summer. I got an internship in Washington, DC at WAMU, which is their local NPR affiliate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and it was three times a week and it was in DC. And so I took a bus every week to DC for three days and I commuted every week back and forth. Wow. And they didn't pay for, I mean, I paid for all that out of pocket um, I stayed with a friend, a dear friend of mine from Cornell who lived in DC at the time. She, you know, she graciously welcomed me into her um, apartment every week. I think like one week she was out of town. So I got an Airbnb, paid for it myself, like, um, which sucks. It sucks that people have to do this, but it really, that really changed my career. I, the networking with that opportunity was, well, one, I learned so many valuable skills in terms of actually editing and and like building a narrative and and things like that. So I gained so many skills in that internship, but also the connections were unreal. Like my boss at the time, Daisy Rosario, she's since moved back to New York and she's um, pretty high up at Stitcher. And a few months ago, she reached out to me and was like, Hey, do you want, do you, are you busy right now? Like threw a bunch of work at me. So that was, you know, though they also, the host of the show I worked at at the time, she introduced me to someone who worked at BuzzFeed who later helped me get my job at BuzzFeed later. So I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but that was like just pivotal in my career. And so then I, that internship ended, I went back to New York or I stopped commuting, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what do I do? I need money. I don't know if I want to go back into the restaurant industry just because I felt like I felt like I got um, really sucked into it. Like it is really time consuming. Um, and even though you make great money, like it, I was having, I personally was having trouble balancing, like trying to further my career and that, um, and that industry. So I kind of gave myself a month to like figure it out, sort of like a birthday present to myself, took a grand out of my savings to like pay for my rent for a month. And I like scoured Craigslist and everything for any sort of opportunity. And I became an SAT tutor. I was an SAT tutor for 
the better part of a year maybe. And that also helped keep me afloat. And in the meantime, I was just constantly firing off emails left, right, and center, like trying to meet whoever I could, trying to talk to whoever I could. Um, like I said, the summer 2017 internship internship introduced me to um, someone who worked at BuzzFeed. We had, you know, like an intern informational interview and I applied for a couple fellowships there. And I, I think I got rejected the first time around. I just kept applying. Mm -hmm. Um, and then that, you know, that's a little bit on the back burner. <laughs> and then sometime around, um, wow, I feel like I'm jumping all over the place with my story because I haven't that's told it right. in a while. <laughs> so something else that happened in 2017, early 2017 is that I was on LinkedIn and I came across a woman who went to Cornell and who worked at This American Life. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what? This is unheard of. No one from Cornell works in radio and podcasting. Her name is Diane Wu. And so I reached out to her and she very graciously agreed to have a phone call with me. And she was incredible. She had turned me on to a lot of resources um, for the industry, like a bunch of listservs where people are constantly posting internships and jobs and, and people post, you know, um, post questions asking for advice from everything from like how to ask more money to like, what's the best, um, microphone for this type of thing, you know, like anything you could ask for. Um, she turned me on to a couple of serves that address those things. So mm -hmm. that also opened up a lot of opportunities in terms of like emailing everyone I could. Um, and so fast forward, like a year, eight months or whatever, um, she, I get an email from her that's like, Hey, we are looking, uh, she was like, Hey, like some of the producers of this American life are looking to write a fiction podcast and they're looking for a writer's assistant. I thought of you, would you be interested? So I said, yes, of course. So <laughs> for the better part of a year, I was balancing being an SAP tutor and, um, a writer's assistant for the show. Now that show eventually got shelved, um, which is sad. So I can't, you know, ever really share how fun that would have been to be a part of that. But, mm -hmm. um, before it got shelved sometime in like early, early 2018, I finally heard back from Buzzfeed. Like I, I was like, Oh, I applied to this like 8 million years ago. And I guess they had some like intern, they were having some like internal changes happening, which pushed back the, um, the fellowship process, uh, but they had over 300 applicants. Um, but because of the woman who I had connected with, um, because we had such a great informational interview, you know, she kind of flagged me mm -hmm. and I did the whole interview process. I did edit tests. I did, you know, all the things that you do to show that you have some instincts for voice and, you know, they don't expect you to, especially if it's a fellowship or internship, they don't expect you to know how to do everything because obviously one reason why you're not being paid like a regular producer is because you, they need to train you. So, you know, mm -hmm. that's why those, you know, even though interns shouldn't get paid $11 an hour, they shouldn't get paid $40 an hour because they don't know how to do the things that someone who gets paid right more $30 an hour knows how to do. Anyway. Um, so they, I mean, don't get me wrong. I was still underpaid at Buzzfeed, but that's another story. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so they, so I went through that process and then I got that job and that was, I mean, it was a full-time, it was a contract position, mm -hmm. but it was full-time hours. And it was the first time I was full-time since, um, two years earlier when I was an internet NPR. And so that was like a huge breath sigh of relief. Like you don't understand the stress that comes from like trying to make it in, in like a creative field or industry. Um, 
sure it's nowhere near as hard as maybe breaking into acting, but it's still pretty freaking hard. Mm -hmm. So that was incredible. That was my first, you know, that when I got that job, I was like, I finally broken into the industry because I'm going to be formally trained and I'm going to be able to, and I'm, by the time I leave here, I know that I'm going to be doing the same stuff as the regular producers, which was true, which is where the underpaid part comes in uh-huh. of like, you know, being paid like an intern or fellow when you're truly carrying, um, sometimes an entire production of an episode or a show. Right. And that really came into play because I don't know if this matters, but while I was there, you know, BuzzFeed fired my entire team, but they couldn't fire me because I wasn't full-time and I had a specific contract and had just gotten renewed. Um, So I was there for like three months as the sole podcast producer and I was Mm -hmm. technically a fellow. And so I just produced the two remaining shows that were there um, or one, two, no, the one remaining show that was there. So um, that was an interesting slash wild time. So when my, when my contract was up, they actually, my boss there who she was she would had formerly been my boss's boss but then became my boss because she fired my boss um uh so my boss offered me a job like do being like an audience coordinator for like a tv like a facebook watch or facebook video or whatever property and i wasn't like that early in my career like i get it if you're trying to make it in media you know you take whatever opportunity but i wasn't in that type of i wasn't in that part of my career where i'm like yeah, anything will do. I just want to say it No, I was like, look, I have, I'm trained on all these skills. I know that I want to do this. That doesn't exist here anymore. Like I'm okay with walking away. I don't want to, I don't want to become an audience coordinator for TV. Like that's, mm-hmm. you know, if I want to get into TV production, that would be the way, but I don't. Right. Right. Um, so I said, thank you respectfully. Thank you. No, thank you. And then I decided to give myself a little break and I went to Australia for three months, <laughs> like a bit of a sabbatical. Mm-hmm. I was originally going to go just for one month because, you know, I was unemployed. And then uh, a woman reached out to me from Macmillan Podcasts, who I had interviewed to be a, for a producer job there sometime earlier, maybe a year earlier. And I was not qualified enough at the time. So she had to say no, but she really liked me. And so she was like, hey, and she had been following my career, apparently. And so she knew that I was now kind of equipped to do production or producer type a producer type role so she asked me if I would be willing to do some contract work for some part-time contract work for them and I said I would love to but I'm actually planning on going abroad for a few months sorry and she was like that's fine like that's okay you can you know as long as you meet the deadline or as long as you get you know do the work or whatever like that's fine and I was like well, great. So then I extended my trip <laughs> to three months and I, nice. which was as long as my contract. And I was able to like cut, break even during this once in a lifetime whirlwind trip to Australia. Like when I mm-hmm. say I had the best trip of my life, like I cage dived with the great white sharks. I went, um, I went to the outback to Uluru, like that sacred giant, um, flat rock in central Australia. I rented a camper van for five weeks and drove up the coast and I lived five weeks in camper van. And it was like truly, truly an amazing time. So that wouldn't have been possible without, you know, being without the production training that I finally managed to get. And then being confident enough to accept like a remote across the world, remote, you know, production um, opportunity. So that was great. And so then I came back from Australia. I was like, well, what am I going to do now? And 
because of all of my years of like networking and hustling and people being to vouch for the work that I put into the projects I was able to work on, I started receiving opportunities, you know, left and right for freelance, for freelance things. And I was applying to full-time jobs, but I was taking them and I ended up loving it. Like I loved the flexibility and the free time it gave me. Um, I worked on Roxanne Gay and Dr. Tressie McMillan Cottom's podcast, Here to Slay, for the better part of like a year and a half. I, mm-hmm. I parted ways with them this past September. Um, and so I, so that was like a main thing that drove me for most of 2019. The summer of 2019, um, I was recommended by a former BuzzFeed uh, employee to um, to freelance once a week at Vox. I did that for the whole summer that summer. Um, they contacted me again at the start of the pandemic and I've been working mainly with them ever since. So that's another thing. Um, but back to really back in, I remember, so I was doing that and then I went back to only doing here to slay. And then that fall, late fall, like November, like the day before Thanksgiving, I got this email again, recommended by a former BuzzFeed employee. Um, if I could like last minute join a project as like a lead producer for this Netflix branded podcast that, um, Futuro Studios, that's, um, they're, they are like an offshoot of Futuro Media and they make Latino USA, which is a very popular, um, program that you can hear on NPR. And so they contacted me to make this like Latinx identity um, celebrity type of show for Netflix for as a part of a launch of their Latinx vertical conto. And so I was like, absolutely, yes. And it was like a whirlwind. They like flew me to LA. It was like this very glamorous shoot, which is very different than normal podcast production. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really, and I worked very closely with the host of that show, Dasha Polanco from Orange is the New Black, among many other amazing um, shows and properties. And that was really when I was like, not only have I, do I know that I'm good at my job, but like now other people know I'm good at my job. That's when I was truly like, BuzzFeed was like, oh, I finally broken in. This was like, I've made it. <laughs> so that was like an incredible highlight for me. And after that, uh, once that show wrapped, I was like, it's time to travel again. And I went to Mexico for two months and that now we're now that is like March, 2020. And so uh-huh. I was supposed to stay in Mexico through April and I had to leave because of the pandemic, obviously. And part of me, and I was like done, I was like done with a million contracts at the start of March. Mm-hmm. And I had some things in the pipeline for like May, but I wanted to give myself a break. And, you know, Here to Slay also came back in production in like April or May. So I was also having like a gap from them. And I truly was like, I'm fucked. Like I'm a freelancer and I've, at some point along the way in 2019, I decided that freelance life was for me because of the flexibility, the ability to travel, like the good money that I was able to make now that I had a name for myself and people trusted and respected my work. And I was like, this is horrible. And thank God, thank God opportunities came to me because people were desperate to turn out more content because people were at home. Yep. And so it ended up working out for me because I wasn't focused on a million other things and like living my normal life. I dedicated even more time um, to the working than I ever would have and ever hoped to again, if I'm being honest. Um, I totally am all for a good work-life balance. And I did not have that for the majority of 2020. And I was able to put my name on so many different projects and things, both with Fox and in other places, like I said, my old boss, um, who now works at Stitcher, she worked, reached out to me. I worked on a bunch of Stitcher shows um, this past fall. And so 
that's kind of um, where I'm at now. I've been mainly, my main, um, my main client now is Vox Media and New York Magazine. And yeah, I think that's where I am now. I'm sorry, was that, how was that? Was that a lot? I love, I mean, it was a lot, but it was, <laughs> it was very comprehensive. And um, it's, uh, it's you, good to you. hear that journey and that you were able to, you know, fit in some travel and some life-changing mm-hmm. experiences as well. Um, and that you have come out on the other side of the pandemic too, which is, you know, a story yeah. that I think people need to hear. Um, as we wrap up, I mean, you mentioned, and I didn't tell you that I was going to ask you this question, but it just came up in my head um, <laughs> yeah, as we were talking. And I think that you'll be able to answer it pretty easily, but we'll see. So, um, you know, you, you mentioned Serial and This American Life and some of the other NPR shows, and but like outside of the shows that you're currently working on or that you have worked on in the past, like what are your go-to podcasts oh for, for oh, listening? Question. People always ask me this. So I would say that the young, when I was younger, um, you know, earlier in my career, mm-hmm. a big reason why I went to podcasting is because I became obsessed with podcasts and like all I listened to was podcasts. And this is not a very fun answer, but now that it's like my whole life and career, I don't really listen to podcasts that much anymore, mm-hmm. um, especially for fun. And there are some that I do listen to, um, especially one-offs, like maybe a season of something. Um, this is hard because for the longest time I said my favorite, which I think con- content wise holds up and it would, it's called reply all and it's from Gimlet media. And when I started telling people about the show, like maybe it was more or less known, but now it's incredibly wildly popular to show that like is extremely mainstream and everyone, whenever people, I tell people that they're like, well, yeah, I know that one, like another one. And I'm like, Oh God, I don't really listen to them anymore, mm-hmm. but they are currently um, there's been some kind con- there's been some criticism around them and their team lately because um, you know, black lives matter movement and you know, the mistreatment of women of color and people of color um, you know, BIPOC, people and employees and mainly white institutions or white institutions that the power held in them is by white individuals, white male individuals. And I think, you know, Gimlet Media is no exception to that. And Reply All has recent in recent months been shown to basically what happens is that they did like a deep dive, like mini series on the Bon Appetit scandal, which I know everyone heard about, I think this past summer, about how all the rising stars or not even rising stars, all the stars of the Bon Appetit kitchen were severely underpaid compared to their white counterparts. And like, and in many cases, some of those, you know, people of color gained, like brought in even more views and even more, you know, revenue than their white counterparts. And they were severely, grossly underpaid and, you know, disrespected and all that fun stuff. And so Reply All was doing a series on that. And like, I think the one, maybe two episodes came out and other Gimlet employees and former Gimlet employees immediately called them out on the fact that so many of the toxic behaviors that they were reporting on and calling out from Bon Appetit were things that the members of that show, both producers and hosts, were guilty of doing with the rest of the Gimlet employees, especially in terms of trying to unionize. And so the Gimlet team, the Reply All team has, the two hosts are white, white men, but they do have, um, some of their producers are people of color, but even those producers were really siding with the power of the institution versus, 
you know, the efforts of the more marginalized employees to unionize. So like, I know that this is not at all related to what you asked me, but that was you, that was my go-to answer always. It's an incredible show, incredibly mm. well-produced, tells amazing stories. But now I'm like, well, should I even recommend it anymore? Because right now they're like, this just happened. So they're kind of trying to figure figure the next ways forward and how to like make amends and do proper, you know, proper learning and growing right gotcha. now. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm trying to think, okay, let me think of, <laughs> um, let me think of something else. I mean, I, I internet NPRs ask me another, and that's for a reason. That's an incredibly, incredibly fun game show, mm-hmm. um, live game show. I used to write, I actually still do occasionally, but I used to write some of the games for the show as well. That was really fun. fun. Yeah, that was really fun. Um, I also, I mean, This American Life is a classic for a reason. Absolutely. They are just such well-produced, well, well, well well-produced content. Okay, actually, my favorite show probably, even above Reply All, my favorite show is probably Snap Judgment. These are all, these are shows that are like long-standing, they've been around, but Snap Judgment, you know, their tagline is storytelling with a beat and the combination of like the deep dive reporting and such well-crafted storytelling with this incredible original sound design for every single story. It just can't be beat. Like that's, that's like the creme de la creme of, of storytelling, of audio storytelling, in my opinion. And I, one of my dreams is to one day like, like produce like a very narrative um, story like that. And Mm -hmm. I, I could have opportunities um, in my career to take on roles that, that are for that, that would come to that um, type of, that would allow me to create that type of content, but I'm in a place right now where I'm okay with the instability of freelance life and I'm prioritizing my ability to travel. Obviously not, you know, in 2020 because of COVID, but my built my ability to travel and work remote, I think I'm prioritizing that over, you know, being a part of a really intense team that needs like all hands on deck in order to create craft like a really great narrative. So maybe mm-hmm. in like five years from now, I'll be making that in the five year plan. I love it. Yeah. Well, Camila, if this conversation is any indication of what your episodes um, are going (laughs) to have, then I know that our audience is going to really love them. So uh, it's, it's time that we wrap up today, but you know, we'll be hearing a lot more from you in the upcoming episodes. And so I am going to sign off by saying music for Fresh from the Hill was written, produced and recorded by Kia Albertson Rogers, class of 2013. And you can contact him at KOA3 at Cornell.edu. And if you want to find out more about young alumni programs at Cornell, visit our website, alumni.cornell.edu slash young alumni or follow our Facebook page at Cornell Young Alumni Programs.